I'm Bub. Welcome to Bub on Purpose, the podcast. I believe that a life driven by purpose can lead to a more fulfilling life. So I ask passionate people why they do what they do. I dive deep into conversations with people of all ages who have developed their life purpose and who can inspire, offer advice, share techniques for developing purpose, and articulate their perspectives. As this podcast is in the early stages, I'm really just excited to dive in and learn myself and share that with you guys. So if you're here in this early stage, I really appreciate you for listening and I hope you take away something valuable. It's not just this generation's fault that they feel so lost and that they're all trying to find their calling but can't. You've just been given more opportunities than anyone else ever had before. You have to try to look for something deeper than the culturally constructed. There's urgency to this passion thing, so I think you're really on to something. We're talking about whether we survive on the planet or not. I would live my life as if I was going to write a book about it. What would people say about me at my funeral? You really have to have a healthy disrespect for other people's opinion. Life is not this guarantee. We're in, there's no guarantee in life. The truck runs me down right after this interview. I've fucking died doing everything I could possibly have done. The voice inside of you that's asking those questions deserves to be honored. That's your truth. That's your clarity. That's your passion. In this episode of the Bub on Purpose podcast, I speak with Matt Kolacielo. Matt was my instructor on a gap year trip in Indonesia in 2014 with the immersive travel and educational company Where There Be Dragons. In our conversation, we often refer to Where There Be Dragons as just dragons. I'm not sure if I know anyone more passionate than Matt. He is someone who I see as leading an extremely meaningful life by improving the lives of others. Matt is an international educator and storyteller focused on social and environmental justice. That is among many other things as will become evident in our conversation. So we'll jump right into it. Can you describe what Where There Be Dragons is from your experience? Yeah, um, I feel like there's the official Definition, which is the Dragons, is a company that runs study abroad and gap year programs for students for, for, you know, 16 to 21 year olds or 22 year olds. And I think they're also running adult programs now. They run educator programs, which I've, which I've led before. Um, but aside from that definition of what Dragons is, Dragons is also, providing, I, I really think, you know, this isn't in the marketing material, but Dragons is providing, from the side of our students, I think it's providing vision quests, honestly. And even sort of while I was running the programs, and then even more, now that it's been a couple of years since I stopped working at Dragons, and I've been meeting up with students. I've become friends with some of the students that I had seven years ago who are now, you know, well into their 20s um, and feel more like peers. I hear from them that that experience, just like you said, was 
pivotal in their lives and helped them define for themselves not only who they are, but how they want to interact with the world and how they want to, how they see their lives unfolding, what their mission is in the world. I think, yeah, I think that's pretty clear for me. And I think you guys as instructors at the time said, like, this will probably probably be something that you think about for a long time to come. And I was like, yeah, I'm sure that'll be true, but I don't know what to, to what extent. And it really, um, it really was like me before 18, before dragons. And then after dragons was like a clear, um, I think I wrote it down, uh, sort of a point of orientation Yes. that we have spoken about before, but yeah, I guess how, how does dragons allow that vision quest to happen so powerfully? Cause it seems like so many people, it acts as that yeah. orientation. I think because in going to another culture, you're not just going to another culture. It's not like moving from one center to another center. I mean, you are doing that in a way, but in the process from moving from one cultural world to another, a lot of time is spent in the in-between. In between understanding the structure of your society, the norms, the expectations, and the norms and expectations of another culture, there's this wide open kind of liminal space. And in that space, you have to figure out what you believe outside of what's been imposed, beyond what's been imposed. You have to try to look for something deeper than the culturally constructed. Mm -hmm. And that process is... It's like a vision quest because you have to rely on yourself. You have to listen to what the inner voice is saying is right Mm -hmm. um, or is just. And unfortunately, and maybe this has always been the case, I don't want to just put it on American culture in the 21st century. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of spaces in our culture or perhaps in most others where we get to do that. There's so much noise and so many expectations and so much scheduled time. And then you come on a dragon's trip and you're in this kind of wide open space. I mean, there's scheduled time, there's activities, of course, but what's actually happening is that you are exploring the liminal space between two cultures and it's really powerful. So as you know, there's this place, Sampella, that we visited on our trip. And it's an amazing place and also very hard to describe to people who haven't been there. What does Sampella have that we're so affected by? A few things. I mean, the first thing, because it connects to what we were just saying, is that Sampella itself is doubly liminal. Because, I mean, the experience for foreigners going there is doubly liminal because you're learning a completely different culture, but you're also with a people and a culture that is in itself in a complete state of flux. And wait, describe the physical. Okay, so Sampella is a community of Bajau, ethnically Bajau people. The Bajau inhabit several different countries. And in all of those contexts, a big part of their lives is spent on the water. Some people continue to live in boats as their ancestors did. Um, they were seafaring. Some people live on land, but still, um, 
consider themselves culturally connected to the ocean. And in the case of Sampella, they have a kind of in-between where they still live on the sea, but they live in houses built on stilts in a shallow area between a coral reef and a seagrass bed between two islands. And so they are spatially liminal because they're well, they're not on land, they're in the water. They are culturally and historically liminal because they're in a huge transition between being completely sea-based and nomadic. And, and on the other hand, you know, unfortunately in the next few decades, perhaps being forced to migrate to land to relocate their communities because of the way that overfishing and um, climate change are affecting their source of food, which is the coral reef. Uh, so... There's so much liminal about their world. The other thing that's physically impressive about Sampella as a community is that it's, it's yes, houses on stilts and a boardwalk that connects most of those houses. So there's not much space to spread out. And people are outside a lot together. Kids, old people, parents, teenagers, everyone's outside together and loud and communicating a lot. And most of the walls are built out of wood and the floors and even some of the walls are built out of woven rattan. So there's not a lot of soundproofing and it's a space that feels very closely connected and you can't really avoid when you're there being there. You're always there. There's no going into a room and sort of like putting on your headphones and, and like watching Netflix. You're always there. And that's really intense for some people who come from the outside, but it's also, it's also extremely nourishing to be in close community with some really friendly, funny, um, incredible people. Yeah. Um, it's also a community that's impoverished for sure, uh, because they're in this weird transitional space between subsistence and, um, and quite a bit of economic aspiration for having things that people on land have or people that they see on TV have. So yeah, it's, as I said, it's kind of doubly liminal because they themselves are in a somewhat liminal space. Um, even if the sea isn't liminal for them, um, the, the space of transition that they're in is. And I'm, I'm saying that having spent, you know, seven years or eight years now going back there, um, just worked with an anthropologist who was also a dragon instructor for a time to make a film about the community. Um, so I've spent a lot of time hanging out with um, our sort of primary contacts there, Andar and Saipa, and, you know, hanging out with teenagers and fishermen, gleaners of sea products. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. So Matt, you've spent many years leading trips in both India and Indonesia. Can you give me one broad takeaway and one specific takeaway from what you've learned over the years on these trips? Broadly, I would say 
spending time in these vastly different communities, even within Indonesia, and then of course moving between India and vastly different communities in India and vastly different communities in Indonesia, um, I would say the broad takeaway for me has been that multiple worldviews, disparate worldviews, should be allowed to exist without us problematizing the fact that they're different. Like, they don't actually have to be seen as contradictory. They're just parallel. They're not in conflict. They're just multiple ways of seeing things. And they're valid. And they're, they deserve respect because they've developed over long periods of time for a particular context. And the fact that they've survived the, 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 changes that have occurred across history means that there's something really strong and important about them. Mm-hmm. So broadly, it's that. It's like respecting that there are multiple ways of viewing the world and they should be allowed to simultaneously exist. Specifically, I feel like each community, the experiences I've had in those places have taught me really different things. Hanging out with Andar and Saipa and their friends and neighbors um, feels like a deeply personal and very specific experience. You know, I can't even say something about the Bajau or even Sampella in general, but rather like those friendships, you know. Um, the Bajau world that Andar specifically has talked about for many, many hours and I've been like privileged to be present for that, um, has taught me so much about my own flawed and limited assumptions about human beings' relationship to ecosystems and to the way that we see as land people, we see the sea as a wide open, vast kind of void. Um, whereas it's actually also a collection of specific places that are culturally relevant to people. Um, and in India, Oh man. So, I mean, I spent five years of my life in India and I had my own kind of vision quest experience there. And for me, just kind of exactly what you were saying for me, my life is before 2008 and after 2008, which is when I went on a college study abroad program, um, in a monastery in Bodh Gaya, which is the place where the Buddha attained enlightenment 2,500 years ago. And for me, that experience you know, it transformed the way I see everything. It transformed the way I like process existence. Mm. And every single day I live in relationship to that experience as a pole around which I orient everything in my life. And unfortunately, <laughs> most of the time I'm thinking about how I'm not living up to, to what I learned and saw there, you know, but it's good. It creates a kind of tension in my life that brings me back to what's most important on a daily basis and uh, challenges me to, to not fall asleep and to not avoid, you know, as Buddhists say, the inevitable suffering that is associated with existence. 
Yeah. Uh, if 20-year-old Matt was sitting in this room with us, what advice would you give him to find his own vision quest without knowing that that experience in India was out there for you? I think we actually do, all of us, kind of know that that kind of experience is important. I think we're all kind of yearning for that kind of experience as adolescents. Mm -hmm. Because as kids, there's a kind of givenness about the world around us. It's our given circumstances that we're born into. And whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable, we're just adapting and taking things as the world. And then at a certain point when you're in adolescence, your mind gets to a level of development where you start questioning the givenness of it. Wait, why is it like this? Wait, does it have to be like this? Wait, do I need to participate this way? Wait, do I have to think of myself this way? And the beginning of the answer to those questions, I think, is in a vision quest experience where you discover what's deeper than your circumstances and what's deeper than the the mold that society has put you in since the time you were born. And um, so I would say to my earlier self what I've said to all of the students who it seemed appropriate to say to, um, which is like the voice inside of you that's asking those questions deserves to be honored. And even if it, it feels like the path to answering those questions or even just the path of asking those questions is going to turn your world upside down, mm-hmm. maybe it has to be turned upside down to be right side up. Mm-hmm. So go there. How long did you instruct Dragon's Trips and what are you up to now? I was a Dragons instructor for four years and came back to the U.S. in 2015, about three and a half years ago, and wanted to continue, you know, building bridges and uh, between cultures, kind of wanted to continue doing the same thing, but I needed to no longer be in the field eight months a year. I needed to have a base. And in thinking about what I could do to continue like the work in a deeper sense, but also give my own, you know, life and even my, my physical body, like a base, a place to root, I decided to start, um, working with media which I had done in college. And when I was like in high school, my dream was to be an ethnographic filmmaker and a Buddhist monk. Um, <laughs> At the same time. And a performance artist. Uh, yeah, that was my... You're, you're doing pretty well. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on performance artists now. I think I'm... And, you know, Buddhist monk is always there. I'm always like, should I have a boyfriend right now or should I just put on the robes? Um, <laughs> but... Uh, Yeah, I started working with media and trying to use it as a way to create space for the voices and insights of the people that I had been working with in Mali, India, and Indonesia throughout my 20s. So that's what I started doing. And I've basically just built this business over the last few years 
and it's called the Global Workshop. Yeah, we're, we're calling it, so Andar suggested mm-hmm. back in 2016 when I was in Sampella working on a project um, for the Global Workshop. He said, Matt, that's such a generic name, Global Workshop. I think you should call it Glow-wo, <laughs> Global Workshop, Glow-wo. And I was like, I think you're right. So we're calling it Glow-wo Media now, um, but it's still like registered as the Global Workshop. But anyway, yeah, yep. it's called Glow-wo Media slash the global workshop and um yeah over time what i've ended up doing is making short films and video content for social and environmental justice causes in partnership with everyone from like universities to the governor's climate and forest task force to environmental defense fund um the most recent project that i've been involved with for like the last year now documents the amazing contribution that Muslim doctors, med students and volunteers are making to close the healthcare gap in their communities across the U S. So we made a 30 minute documentary about Muslim run free clinics. There are like 70 across the country. We partnered with researchers from the medical schools at BU and Harvard to figure out what their national impact is. So to, to measure numerically, how many people they're treating. It's about 50,000 people across the U.S. are receiving free care. They're from all backgrounds. What unites them is that they're 200% below the poverty line and don't have health insurance. Most of the people receiving care from the Muslim-run free clinics are not Muslim. So it's a really like incredible story about what Muslim Americans are doing that hasn't gotten very much press attention and has never been quantified. So this film and the study are what we're about to take around the country in the fall to raise awareness and actually help start a network of the clinics so that they can kind of strengthen one another. What Remind me what it's called and where people will be able to... The film is called Unconditional Care and um, the, it's, it's going to be available through the Alchemia channel on Amazon Prime and uh, will also be available for free to stream on a website that we have not yet built. <laughs> yeah, uh, an idea when that will be? Um, it will be available by fall 2019. Okay. Yeah, and we're going to do like a national tour. Um, so hopefully you'll be seeing more about that in the next few months. Yeah. What is your driving force? Your Why? Um, at the heart of it, it's, it's justice, social and environmental grounded in spiritual inquiry. So I feel like it's wisdom on the ultimate side and compassion in the form of working for justice on the sort of conventional side. I'm using like a Buddhist kind of framework here, but, um, yeah, so wisdom and compassion in the form of, of existential inquiry on one hand and social environmental justice on the other. And then in terms of the issues that I'm most focused on, it's underlying it, working on climate change is huge to me because the front lines of climate change 
are this like international or transnational space. It's all these different parts of the world facing different issues, but it's ultimately one issue. And it's something that can really, really unite us, which I know is for some people, uh, you know, a globalist nightmare. But to me, it's like our species is united in needing to fight this or should be united in needing to fight this problem of our own making. And how incredible is it that we have an impetus that's an existential threat um, to come together, to work together and see ourselves really bound in the same reality, even if it's happening in different places manifested in really different ways, different issues, whether it's ocean acidification and coral bleaching or the melting of the glaciers or droughts and the unpredictable ability of the seasons. So climate change is a really huge issue and always seeing climate change as connected to um, racial and to racial justice because so often the injustice is mapped along race, ethnicity, caste, tribe, depending on the context. So, and then always bringing to that a, like a, a deeper sense, even if it's not articulated of like, we need to do this work because we need to ultimately be moving from a place of knowing that there is no difference. On the surface, there's huge amounts of difference and they need to be acknowledged. But deep, 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 deep down, like we need to think of ourselves as always interlocked with every human being and every living thing and all the non-living things that make our lives possible. And we need to see ourselves as a community. And if we're a community, the only way that we're going to function is if we commune. So for me, it's about like that communion, whether it's through a dragon's trip or through creating media that makes space for people's voices that aren't being heard. Yeah. I want to get your perspective on something, Matt. Uh, to me, it seems that there is a merging of cultures as well as a loss of cultures. And I, I think the internet is playing a large role in that. How do you see us moving forward while holding on to our diversity? We can move forward together like any complex ecosystem does through diversity, through cultural and biodiversity and intellectual diversity. We have to. We won't move forward together if we, if we don't nourish diversity. Um, I mean, that's just one thought. Yeah. With the internet, yeah, it has the potential to connect us. But the internet is a space, right? But it's, it's also, it's also a collection of cultures. And by and large, the cultures have primarily now, and the platforms have been, you know, they're built around, they're built around commodification of everything. It's the same problem in the non-internet world of our culture. It's not built around You can't commodify the truth. You can't commodify the liminal space. The moment you put an advertising box, the moment you, you put a box around these things, they don't, they're not them anymore. You know, uh, in order for us to have a sense of really connecting with one another, especially across cultures and economic realities and across 
you know, the racial divides that our minds have been inscribed with since the moment we were conscious, we have to fall into a liminal space together. And that can't happen on Facebook. It's not going to happen that way. So although the internet could connect us in that way, it's not connecting us that way. And it's not the only way. And it's certainly not the only way. And I mean, that's why I'm using media. And what I want to move towards, what we're working on now is actually creating exhibits. So you're using media to bring people to faraway places to hear the voices and perspectives and feel the the passion and wisdom or intensity or vulnerability of or truth of people in different cultures that are experiencing different realities. But instead of viewing it on your computer, instead of like swiping past it on your Instagram feed, you're in a room in a museum or just in any kind of exhibit. It could be in a school that's, you know, it's multi-purpose room has been taken over and you're inside of it, you know, through projections, through sound, you're kind of, you fall into it. And I think that that is kind of what needs to happen. So I'm actually thinking about how to create a museum exhibit as like a miniature study abroad experience. Because if you had watched a series of videos about Indonesia mm-hmm. on your laptop, yeah. it may have sparked your curiosity, but it wasn't going to put you into that liminal space that's necessary for you to hear yourself, for you to confront injustice, for you to be forced to develop some kind of deeper existential relationship to the world, to feel your mission. And so maybe with an exhibit that's immersive, you can have actually a miniature experience of that through connecting with people across time and space. I'm excited to see how that comes about. I have two more questions for you. The first is, who is the most passionate person you know? My mom. Do you want me to tell you about that? Yeah. yeah. Wow, I'm going to get like a little misty here. Uh, (laughs) My mom is... My mom is almost 70 now. A couple years ago, she found out she had an aneurysm in her thoracic aorta and had to have open heart surgery out of the blue, out of the blue. Um, She was otherwise extremely healthy and like, you know, no one would have imagined that she had a condition that could kill her almost instantly. And if it hadn't been caught, it would have. Um, And I remember as they were explaining to her how they would have to like, you know, you know, saw her in half and open her chest and, you know, remove a valve and her entire aorta, you know, her thoracic aorta, which is like the largest vein in the body and replace and all this stuff. Then they're going to, you know, wire her shut again. Like I remember sitting in the hospital with her as they were telling this to her and her question immediately after that was, well, you know, we have this anti-bullying program that we're working on and I really need to be in there like beginning of October and her surgery was happening like at the end of August. 
<laughs> and that was her response to hearing that she was going to be sawed. Oh, you know her. <laughs> um, and I just remember thinking, like, this woman is so passionate. Like, she, she, so she's a director and uh, an actress and has a one-woman show and writes plays. And most of what she does has, a, like, a social justice or a racial justice component um, or kind of, like, gender I mean, she talks a lot about being a woman and the way that medicine intervenes into your relationship in the body and how medicine is dictated by men and all this kind of stuff which then she had this experience with her heart which absolutely had components of that involved so <clears throat> she's so passionate she's never going to stop she has a black box theater she's having like moth storytelling style hours in her space once a month and she creates a space for so many young artists, poets, actors, and non-actors to come and like find their voice and to speak their truth and to listen to one another. And I think growing up with that, with someone super passionate like that, you know, my parents, my dad is also an artist and like they held house concerts in our house every month while I was growing up, musicians and rehearsals and hung people's art on the walls of our house to try to help them sell it. Having people like that super passionate in my life has definitely made me feel like, all right, whatever, I can, I can pretty much do anything and I don't need much money to do it. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Brief for last question. Has there been one book that has transformed the way you think more than others? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a cliche. Um, but I mean, there's a reason why this book is so important and it's Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Yeah. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, Have you read it? I, you know, it's interesting. I read it in high school when I was 14 and my neighbor from home who I've gotten very close with over the last couple of years, um, just sent it to me two weeks ago. Reread it. So I'm going to reread it. It's different in every life phase. Well, thank you for doing this. I think there's not many people who have impacted me as impacted the way I think and me as a being as much as you have. So thank you. And thanks for today. Yeah. Thanks for having this conversation. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bub on Purpose podcast. If you would like to get show notes from the learnings that I hope you gathered during this conversation, you can email bubonpurpose at gmail.com and you will get a response with all of the show notes. Make sure to title the subject of your email something like show notes or your grandma's cookie recipe, your friend's dog's middle name, or really anything. I'll get back to you. Also, I would love if you would send me your suggestions of what you did or didn't like or who you think I should interview next on the podcast. And again, please send that to bubonpurpose at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Before you go, I want to leave you with something I've been thinking about. I bring it up now because Matt is originally who asked me this question, but he asked, where are you from? But in his way of asking, he didn't want it to be answered with the geographic location of your birthplace or 
where you're raised, but rather, well, what makes you you? Like what experiences have culminated to alter your being? Um, and I, I guess I just think that question leads to a deeper human connection. And it was sort of a realization for me that we, we have to be willing to search for more revealing questions to, to understand each other better. So next time you meet someone, I hope you ask, where are you from?